0: you're listening to a selection of stories from this week's morning ireland
1: the first of a series of peat fired stations began work at port Harlington in 1950 and the second at allenwood in 1952 on the adjacent bog the turf is won by machinery during a production and harvesting season that lasts for about eight months more of these peat stations are now under construction one is nearing completion at furban in county offaly And there's another underway at in County, Longford, while four smaller ones are being built at
2: other points throughout the country.
3: Well, they certainly were built in a very different industrial era, creating hundreds of jobs directly and indirectly across eight counties around the Midlands. However, today, what was once the largest peat-burning power station site in the country at Shannon Bridge in County Offaly is going to be shut down for the final time. Our Midlands correspondent, Kieran Mulluli, joins us from under the chimneys of the ESB's West Offerley power plant. And, Kieran, it really is the end of an era, isn't it?
4: Good morning, Anya, from Shannon Bridge. Indeed it is. Shannon Bridge was one of five Midlands power stations built as part of that Sean Lamass, Todd Andrews vision for job creation in this part of the country. This one opened in 1965 at a time when, believe it or not, 6,000 people were employed nationwide and, and over the years by ESB and na Mona, So they not only boosted the economy here, they actually built communities. And so today is really a day of huge sentiment for hundreds of families saying goodbye eh, to this industry. And those giant chimney stacks Uh, this power station is just one of two that will close actually in the next seven days as the policy of decarbonisation is played out here and I've been speaking to former power station worker Jimmy Spollen, who had the privilege of working both here and in Lanesborough. he's stoic about the closure and more than a little disappointed that the process has not been phased out over a longer period
5: oh great employer great altogether I've done a good few years in it I started off in my apprenticeship at Carpentry actually down there when Shannon Bridge was being constructed way back in the early 60s it's a few years ago
4: What are your thoughts about Shannon Bridge and the Lanesboro and your colleagues over the years today? Well
5: this, this I'll way? tell you the God's the truth now what I think about it and chatting a few people in plain ordinary chat about it I, I think there should have been a bit more approach made to it it was left a little bit too long while it was being talked about there now I could be wrong but yeah. so I could but I think that a lot more people and got a lot more support from Móna. And maybe from the media as well. Yeah. was too late now.
3: The power station uh, closes there today. Uh, talk about the economic impact on the local economy and workers there.
4: Yeah, there's a mixed situation on you. Many of those working in the power station here uh, will will, tra- will retire or be able to transfer to other parts of the ESB. A lot of board and mono workers will take voluntary redundancies. Many of them, however, many of the workers here have actually already left the employment and they've gone in search of new jobs. David Kearns from Shannon Bridge is one of those who's under 50 years of age. And he's worked here down through the years in, in difficult and hard working conditions. But he says he's enjoyed the good salary all the way, although now he's on a loose end.
6: The first big paycheck I got on board Mona, I actually hid it in my pocket. I thought there was a mistake made on it. Like that, as you just said, like there was 20, 30 hours. It was going non-stop around the clock. And look, we were in a good area as well. And we go over two grand in one week after tax. And I was fully convinced someone made a mistake somewhere along the line. And keep your mouth shut and say nothing. And check your bank account next morning to make sure... It was right. So look But in that
4: week you had worked a
6: lot. Oh look you're working at seven in the morning till seven in the evenings, seven days a week. Look, production was production and you only had a short period of time. But the money that could be made for a summer, a good summer, was colossal.
4: Now what of the future? What's your what's your plan? What do you think what's gonna to happen to people around here the next generation looking for jobs? <laughs>
6: I think, well, my plan is still uncertain at the moment. I still haven't made my mind up exactly what I'm going to do yet. But for the young people here that used to get summer jobs and local employment, local people in it, I don't know where they're going to go or, or where the employment is going to come off. Yeah, there's not too
4: many options.
6: No, there's not. Look, the local shop down here and the local pubs, uh, they're trying their best to keep them here. But again, with COVID, there's not a whole lot of jobs there at the moment for them.
4: Is there a future there? Is there with some brightness on the horizon?
6: There is for certain people. Young enough people that easily transfer skills are willing to take up training, able to adjust to a new way of life. But for most of the people, when they're in their 40s and 50s, it's very hard to make that jump into a new transition for that. And look, that has to be looked at as well. And their concern has to be taken on board as well, which is not at the moment.
4: David uh, uh, David Cairns, one of the awfully workers who's left the company already, On you, Brendan um, Cochran is another man who worked for the company for many years. He's on the Galway side of the River Shannon, uh, based over at Clunford and the Clunford Bogs. He was out this week looking at the last carriage of peat crossing the River Shannon Bridge. Now, a lot of people don't realise, over the years, the salaries were indeed quite extensive in this region. ESB workers in the power stations were paid on average of over €70,000. And, and Móna staff could bring home, as you just heard, over over a thousand in the really high peak season so Brendan has been reflecting in the last 24 hours on the way that ESB and Borden have changed the face of the community here
7: I remember when the first train went over there in 1968 you know it was opened in July 68 and I remember the first train Lord going in and the fascination of it, you know, and I remember my dad and my mother were so excited about, uh, you know, the prosperity of this thing coming, you know what I mean, and the jobs that were going to arrive, and Bordamona brought wealth to the area, really, you know, like very little cars in the area here in the early 60s, maybe one or two cars in the whole parish. When Bordamona arrived, soon there was a lot of black Anglias arrived in the area, and people built on extensions onto houses, bathrooms and that type of thing, you know, it was great really, you know. And, and, children, were
4: yeah. and children were educated in
7: college. Children were educated, yeah, yeah, and it went on then, and then when we got married when well, my kids grew up, um, um, three of my sons at a different time actually worked here, as seasonals driving tractors here, you know, it was a huge company, gave massive employment, great support to the areas, you know, and uh, there was one thing about Border of Morning, we always said, uh, look you got your wages every Thursday, you know, you were sure of that, you know, and, uh, and, and that was brilliant. And as well as that, then, Bordamona, uh, they gave a lot to the areas as well. I mean, um, in parts of Ireland, they built houses. Like in kilcormac 104 uh, local houses was built there, you know. And throughout other parts of Ireland as well, in Derry Green, uh, down in Ballydermot, they built houses for the workers. So they were a great company.
4: Brendan Coughlin there, speaking of the good days. The last load of peat has indeed now arrived at the power station here overnight. In the next few hours, the boiler will be turned down and this station will go forever. I suppose with it will go thousands of hours of good memories in this part of the country, camaraderie among friends and and neighbours over the last number of years. West Offaly will never again see the scale of job creation or indeed salary income that these industries produced. And the people of Lanesworn County Longford face the very same experience next week when they wind down their operations on Friday from Shannon Bridge, it's back to you in the studio.
3: Kieran Maluli there, our Midlands correspondent. Thank you for that, Kieran.
0: Well, there's some good news for pregnant women and their partners this morning. The HSE has said that women can now have their partner present for the 20-week anomaly anatomy scan and any surgical interventions that may be needed. It followed an online campaign which saw over 50,000 people sign a petition. The campaign organiser Caroline Cummings joins us now. Caroline, are you happier this morning?
8: Uh, Yes, Audrey, I am. I'm a a little bit happier. Um, It's it's a welcome move in the right direction. Uh, It's definitely just seen as a first step, hopefully a first step of many, but um, I know this will have a huge impact on a lot of couples uh, coming up for their scans soon, so it's great.
0: Absolutely. The HSE said that they are now reclassifying partners as an essential companion for the 20-week scan and because of low COVID infection rates in maternity services and no maternal deaths due to COVID, they were in a position to to standardise the position across maternity hospitals. Will you tell us just the experiences of some women um, and their partners um, in the last number of months?
8: Yeah, I mean, that's that's fantastic that I think one thing I just need to say is that um, there there have been so many really brave women stepping forward and, and ex- sharing their experiences and their stories over the last few months. Some of them have been absolutely heartbreaking and, and very difficult to listen to. So in some ways, you know, giving them a voice has been really important. And at least maybe this morning, some of them will feel listened to and, um, you know, that their experiences have been validated, which is really important. Um, I suppose there's been sort of three, three categories of stories coming through time and time again. The first being uh, women being alone in scans um, and, and hearing really tragic news about miscarriage and pregnancy loss. So that's where this particular restriction lifting will be um, the most impactful. Um, but having said that, there are still women as we speak in labor by themselves with their, their partners out, outside in the car parks waiting for a call to come in. And indeed, women on postnatal wards who are having a really tough time uh, on their own, not able to see anyone from their family or you know or their husbands. So it's it's those two groups of women's we of women we now want to focus on with this campaign, so that we can still keep pushing it forward and, and give everyone the support that they need throughout um, both labour and post delivery as well.
0: Yes, because at the moment, um, even though this reversal has happened, partners are still not allowed to attend the actual birth, are they?
8: they are allowed to attend the birth but there's very strict uh, rules about when they're allowed in so if you okay. present to the hospital door in labor um, they won't be allowed to come straight in with you 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 need to be considered um, sort of established enough in your labor for them to come in. So, for example, my my sister-in-law gave birth last week in the Cork Maternity Hospital, and she was 19 hours on her own laboring before her husband was allowed in. And it was a really, really tough time for both of them, with him outside in the car park, sort of anxiously waiting for the call. Um, He was allowed to stay for two hours after the baby was born, and uh, he had to then go home, and she was in hospital for another four or five days on her own and he didn't see them at all through that time so that's really really tough and it's it's that part of the story that now needs to be acknowledged and hopefully changed um you know the 20-week scan is is as i say one step hopefully in the right direction but it's not enough
0: yeah but it's not easy you you accept that it's not easy for the hse
8: trying oh, to protect everybody involved in this during a pandemic at, yeah absolutely and um i mean i i, I, I don't wish to be in anyone of the positions, you know, the people who have to make the decisions. um, It's a really, you know, it's a tough call. Um, I suppose our, our position on it is that a lot of these restrictions came in back in March when, you know, there was a lot of unknown about this pandemic, a lot of fear. And there needed to be, you know, very severe restrictions put in place. We accepted that then. I mean, we're now in December, so it's 10 months down the line. We know a lot more. There's a lot more resources available. And we just think that, as you say, if they're going to classify partners as essential companions, Um, that's a very welcome change in terminology and and with that needs to go uh, some thinking about how to make it safe for everybody. We certainly don't want to put the staff in in, in any danger or the patients and their babies. So there's a safe way.
0: Caroline, good luck with your own uh, impending uh, delivery. Thank you very much for, for joining us this morning, Caroline Cummings. Less than one
2: in six of Irish travellers are in employment. That's one of the lowest rates for travellers across Europe. An EU study has also found that more than two-thirds of travellers here have reported suffering racism and that about half of people here say they would feel uncomfortable with Roma and travellers as neighbours. The Survey of Rights and Living Conditions of Travellers in Ireland was compiled by the European Union Agency for Fundamental Rights and it got the views of those who self-identify as Roma or members of the traveller community in Belgium, France, Ireland, the Netherlands, Sweden and the UK. Martin Collins is co-director of Pavy Point Traveller and Roma Centre. Martin Collins, good morning again.
9: Good morning, Gavin.
2: Uh, Tell us more about what this study found.
9: Well, as you rightly point out, uh, Gavin, uh, this survey is being launched this morning by Minister Roderick O'Gorman, and it's also been launched in association with our partners, uh, the Irish Human Rights and, and the Equality Commission and the Fundamental Rights Agency. Um, this report, um, Gavin, um, provides further evidence, if further evidence was needed, uh, that points to the ongoing exclusion and discrimination that Travellers experience in Irish society. The survey is also quite unique in that it's the first comparable study of its kind ever. In other words, we are able to assess and compare the situation and the experience of travellers in Ireland with the experience of travellers in Roma okay. in the five other countries, the Netherlands, Belgium, Sweden, the UK and France.
2: And how does the experience of travellers here compare with the other countries surveys?
9: Well, if you want to look at it in terms of a a league table, uh, Gavin, I'd have to say we come out uh, quite poor. As you rightly point out, uh, Irish travellers have the lowest uh, employment rate at only 15% uh, compared to the other five countries. Uh, 10% of travellers reported going to bed hungry in the previous month. And this will be no big surprise to your listeners. 90% of travellers said there was both inadequate and insufficient uh, accommodation available, and that includes halting sites and group housing schemes. The report also tells us that of the six countries surveyed, uh, travellers in Ireland experienced the second highest level of discrimination uh, compared to the other five countries. And also 27% of travellers have experienced uh, bullying in school. So again, Gavin, it's a stark reminder, as I say, okay. of the ongoing uh, exclusion and, and discrimination that travellers experience in our society. And we hope uh, that the findings of this sub- study will be a wake-up call uh, to our political uh, leaders. And uh, as we speak now, Gavin, the present National travel Role Inclusion Strategy is being reviewed. Okay. Well, uh, and the successor to it, we hope that the evidence from this will feed into a more robust and targeted uh, new uh, strategy to address exclusion and rest the Traveller and Roma experience.
2: Martin Collins, we'll be talking to Housing Minister Daryl O'Brien later in the programme. You mentioned accommodation there. Why, in your view, has the allocated money for Traveller accommodation not been spent a- again this year?
9: Well, at the moment, uh, Gavin, we have an estimated 1,300 Traveller families who are homeless. Almost 600 of those are actually living in what you might term illegal or unauthorised developments and another 700 are doubling up with extended family members in overcrowded, very unsafe conditions. Uh, 69 million euro, Gavin, has been left unspent since the year 2000. That is nothing short of shameful, that local authorities are not spending their allocated budgets budgets to meet the accommodation needs of travellers. And quite frankly, they say the definition of madness is trying the same thing twice and expecting a different result. We have been taking the same approach for the last 20 years, and the evidence is overwhelming. The numbers of travellers becoming homeless is increasing day by day. We need to think outside the box. We need, we need a new approach. And to be quite frank uh, with you, Gavin, uh, this power uh, needs to be taken away from the local authorities. They are both unwilling uh, and incapable okay. of providing for the accommodation needs of travellers. So I would urge Daryl O'Brien and others oh, okay. to work with us and to come up with a more effective Solution to address this uh, crisis.
2: Martin Collins, co-director of Pavey Point Travel and Roma Centre. Thank you for speaking to us. So a
10: 90-year-old woman has become the first person in the world, apart from those obviously who took part in the vaccine trials, to receive the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID vaccine. Margaret Keenan, who is originally from Enniskillen, had the injection at her local hospital in Coventry in England. For more, we're joined by Enda Brady of Sky News. Enda, what's been happening?
11: morning, Rachel. Well, a moment of history, really, um, and a wonderful morning, really, a triumph of science. The vaccine is up and running here, and this is day one now, so what will happen between now and the end of the year, they've got 800,000 doses of the vaccine, and the people who are getting it now are on the priority list. So it's over 80s people who are in care homes and some frontline NHS workers. But it's a massive logistical challenge for the NHS, the biggest and most complex ever faced in its history. And Margaret Keenan from Enniskillen, uh, living in the Coventry area, she is the very first person to receive the vaccine here.
10: I was just looking at the pictures. Margaret looks like a hardy woman and fair play to her. Um, Who else is likely to to receive the vaccine today?
11: So... It's the over-80s predominantly today who will be getting it. And it's interesting as well that the first man to receive it is a William Shakespeare, believe it or not, <laughs> uh, from Warwickshire. And that's the county where Stratford-upon-Avon is actually located. So um, what are the chances? Um, it's the over-80s predominantly today. They will all be notified by via letter and 50 hospitals to begin with. So 50 hospital hubs have got the vaccine. This is the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. It has to be stored at between minus 70 and minus 80. 80 it can't be moved very often and um, it's a huge logistical challenge getting this vaccination program up and running so what will happen from december the 14th so from today onwards it's 50 hospital hubs but gps come on board with the vaccination from december the 14th and a thousand local gp centers and community centers and sports stadiums and anywhere people can socially distance They will be involved. And then what you will see really from New Year onwards is the vaccination programme really ramping up and millions and millions of people getting that vaccine.
10: Mm. Do you get the sense that there is an overwhelming welcome for what's happening today or are there those who harbour doubts about this because it's all happening so quickly?
11: I think that's a very valid point you raise. Uh, I was talking to doctors at the weekend. I I was out interviewing GPs, and one GP I spoke to in Harrow, in Northwest London, he was in the middle of doing flu jabs and he said he was making a point of every person that he was giving the flu jab to, he was asking them how they felt about uh, the COVID vaccine and would they have it, and he said out of 50 people, uh, this is about 11am in the morning, Saturday, he said by, he'd, he'd vaccinated 50 people for the flu by 11am, and he said only one person, he said 49 said they categorically yes would have it, and only one person expressed any doubt, so that, that's just one GP surgery in London at the weekend, but I think overwhelmingly people are in favour of it and yes some people do have reservations about the breakneck speed of everything but quite simply the UK can't afford to have another year next year like this one.
10: Enda, uh, thank you very much for joining us. Enda uh, Brady there of Sky News. <music> Return to Belfast next and specifically to the Royal Victoria Hospital, where nurse Sister Joanna Sloan has become the first person on the island to receive the Pfizer BioNTech COVID vaccine. Our northern editor Tommy Gorman is on the line. Tommy, a big day. Will you bring us through what's been happening?
1: Yeah, the, the pictures were, were quite dramatic. They've been coming in on a pool feed from the Royal Victoria Hospital. So uh, the nurse involved is a sister, Joanna Sloan. She's 28 years of age. She was actually due to get married uh, earlier this year, but had to postpone it because of the uh, the virus circumstances. Uh, she has a, a five-year-old daughter uh, and I think she's been based in the Royal Victoria for, for six years. So there was great excitement around the corridors uh, and... Um, you could see the preparations that were in place, two of her colleagues, male and female nurses, uh, were involved in delivering the vaccination to her. And she went through the checks, you know, where she was asked the questions that we'd all be asked if and when our day arrives. Uh, and then uh, the uh, vaccine was given to her uh, Few drops of blood emerged after the uh, needle was delivered, uh, and great excitement—huge, I suppose—day uh, uh, in Joanna's life. And uh, it's interesting that the Northern Ireland link in the whole UK mm-hmm. vaccine program, because the first person to receive the jab across the water. Uh, I think a woman in her 90s. Uh, she was originally from Enniskillen in County Fermanagh. So there you have a young nurse, 28, from uh, County Down. Uh, and a lady, er, an elderly lady originally from County Fermanagh who has been living in Coventry for 60 years getting the jab over there. So what you'll see over the coming days now, Rachel, is the rollout of this vaccine in Northern Ireland. And the priority is, first of all, to provide the service for the vaccinators so that they're protected as they're delivering the service. Uh, and once the vaccinators... Uh, are safe to provide the service, they will then go out into the community and the community will come to them in some cases. You have two centres, two hospitals, the Royal Victoria and the Ulster Hospital in Dundonald and then a number of leisure centres in Northern Ireland and a number of mobile units. Uh, And um, the priority will be after the vaccinators to start uh, providing the vaccine uh, for the elderly who are uh, based in care homes. Uh, and to then ramp it up from there. Northern Ireland, uh, lucky enough to get uh, this service because it it is part of the United Kingdom. And as you know, the UK is the first place in the world to be rolling out this service. It's going to be a huge
10: operation over the coming weeks and months, Tommy.
1: Yeah, the the logistics involved uh, are are quite quite demanding. uh, And I'm sure uh, Brian McCrath's team uh, will be taking account of what's happening in Northern Ireland. Now, they have been preparing for this for some time. You could see the special fridges that they have uh, at the Royal Vic uh, and you could see how the staff had been trained. There was a briefing for the staff there this morning uh, and immediately after uh, the word went around that the first, uh, first vaccine had been delivered, you could hear the applauding and the whooping around the corridors because For people who've been involved at the front line of the health service, they've been going through some very trying times in their own personal lives, the sacrifices, Mm. trying to not bring home uh, the the problem. Uh, And then seeing, I suppose, at first hand, especially in the intensive care units, seeing the challenges people are facing. Uh, And remember, there are over... 400 people in Northern Ireland's hospitals uh, with vaccine related, with virus related illnesses at the moment. You had uh, almost 400 new cases yesterday. Uh, there are still a number of very significant hotspots. Uh, and this society is trying to sort of do that extremely difficult balance that you heard uh, Tony Holland talking about earlier in the programme where people are keen to open up society and at the same time they don't want to drop their guard, so that the virus gets out of control again and and that we face a third wave early in the new year.
10: As you say,
12: still a way to go. Tommy, thank you very much for that. Today the Minister for Agriculture is publishing a roadmap to reduce emissions from the agri-sector. The Ag Climatized document sets out ambitious targets on carbon neutrality but it does not suggest reducing the national herd, one of the biggest contributors to greenhouse gas emissions in the sector. Our agriculture correspondent Fran McNulty has more. What exactly, Fran, does the document suggest?
5: Well, over 22 pages, Mary, it sets out how the sector can help government achieve its target of carbon neutrality by 2015, an EU target of reducing emissions. By 55% by 2030 has also increased the need uh, to get those emissions under control. Agriculture accounting for 35% of all Irish emissions. And this document deals with that. It looks at reducing the dependence on fertilizer, increasing organic farming, increasing tillage. That's far more emissions friendly. And a lot of focus is put on genotyping the national herd. In other words, Mary, improving breeding to have more low emitting animals uh, in the country. Now in Lifford, we've been speaking to the Minister for Agriculture, Charlie McConnelogue, about this roadmap.
11: Every sector is going to have to make its contribution in the years ahead to meet our climate change ambitions um, and agriculture is a very important role to play in relation to that. And the uh, climate and air strategy that we're launching today for the sector for the years ahead, called Acclimatise, has 29 different measures, which is going to, uh, uh, which is going to demonstrate how agriculture can contribute and make its contribution in the years ahead. And the objective is by 20 by 2050 that we will have a carbon neutral um, agriculture. And also the 29 measures in the Acclimatise document today outlines how we will reach a 10 to 15 percent reductions on uh, 2019 CO2 figures by the.
12: That's the agriculture minister there. But Fran, isn't there a, a well explained thesis that reducing the herd is an obvious step? Does the plan suggest that at all?
5: It doesn't, Mary. It doesn't explicitly deal with the issue of herd reduction, which will surprise many people today. Leading environmentalists insist that herd reduction should be on the table. Uh, So we spoke to the minister about herd reduction and asked if it was avoidable. He makes the point that the plan is predicated on no increase in animal methane emissions, but doesn't go any further than that. The sector itself is focusing on reducing emissions. It doesn't want to talk about herd reductions and many organisations are involved in research on reducing emissions. Amongst them is the Irish Cattle Breeding Federation. Now at its centre in Kildare, it measures the amount of methane which different breeds produce. Uh, It's about the industry itself finding a way of reducing emissions without cutting the herd. And Dr Margaret Kelleher is a geneticist with the ICBF.
13: So one area we can look at is is breeding, and the reason that breeding will be advantageous to us is that it's cumulative and permanent. So what I mean by that is by focusing on livestock that have superior genes in the uh, population, by breeding those animals forward as parents to the next generation, they'll continue to breed better offspring that will leave a lower carbon footprint in our industry. So that is one strategy, and what we've seen from the suckler herd alone, is that we're reducing um, our methane emission output by about a half a percent per year per cow. Um, and that is increasing. The trends are showing that we, the more people adopt this technology and use these breeding objectives, that we're actually going to see a, even further increase of that. So it could be upwards around 3% in the suckler herd by 2030. And we're seeing this in the dairy side as well.
12: Dr. Margaret Kelleher and Fran, what do the cattle breeders say about herd reduction?
5: Well, in short, Mary, they don't really think it's necessary, but that is very much a a sectoral view, if you like, a view of a vested interest. Several leading environmentalists disagree. uh, and, And in fact, they measure the impact of agriculture and emissions and say there's a somewhat urgent need to have the national herd cut. It's partly due to the massive expansion in dairy over recent years. But scientists like Dr. Kelleher, who work in the industry, say changes in breeding and those other measures can go a long way to making the change needed.
13: In terms of breeding, if we look at just the suckler herd, we we're at around uh, folks we're getting around the one percent reduction per cow per year in methane emissions, and that's just suckler cows. That's you know 0.9 million cows. We also have we have in total seven and a half million head of cattle um, split between dairy and beef. They're all making progress in that area as well. So you could be talking about in and around 10 to 15 percent reduction in methane if we in, in 10 years' time, if we keep breeding um, using this objective. Um, of course, there's other combinations um, of ways to reduce methane within the industry that other uh, institutes are looking at, such as you know supplements, feed, um, and this is also has a very you know quick way of trying to reduce methane. Whereas for the breeding side of things, um, it's 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 more of a long-term strategy, but it's also it's more permanent. So it's a. It's Combined together, they will work well. We don't need to be looking at getting rid of many of our national herd.
12: Dr Margaret Kelleher ending Fran
3: McNulty's report. <music> and Post has warned that parcel deliveries intended for Christmas they need to be posted by next Monday at the latest and this is due to the hugely increased volumes on account of Christmas and the switch to online shopping during lockdown now in a moment we're going to be hearing how one de- private sector delivery company is coping first Angus Cox you've been talking to early morning shoppers about their online shopping and the pressure on deliveries
14: haven't you? That's right, Anya, and good morning from Dublin City Centre. I'm at the top of Grafton Street, just outside the St. Stephen's Green Shopping Centre, which has pulled up the shutters in the last little while. And I wandered up and down Grafton Street a little earlier as the other retailers here were preparing to open and get the most out of the nearly two weeks we have left of Christmas shopping. But this year, of course, due largely to the pandemic, but also because it has been trending that way, it's all been about online shopping. And I spoke with some of the people here in the city centre... this morning about what they make of the huge numbers we're seeing for online shopping this year and about any concerns about deliveries arriving in time for christmas and this is a flavor of what they told me
12: yeah all of my christmas shopping's online
14: have you done it all yet no well can i inform you or you might know this already you know on post are warning that any deliveries to guarantee them arriving for christmas day need to be dispatched by the end of next monday
1: no i wasn't aware of that so
12: i am go to Brown Thomas at my local store when I go home to Galway.
14: <laughs> you're doing a lot of online shopping yeah, this year? All, a lot, yeah. And have you got it all done? Uh, yeah, like the Black Friday sales, I got it all done then. Because there are a lot of discounts then, so I got it all done before Christmas.
15: Uh, I'm doing a bit of online shopping.
14: More than last year? Yeah, I'd say so. And you're relying on all the presents to come in time for Christmas? Is that what you're doing? Is it buying presents for other people? Yeah. Do you know one Pasta says that if they're telling companies that they need to have deliveries ready to go by next Monday to be sure of arriving for Christmas. Are you worried about anything not arriving, given there's so much more on, online shopping this year?
15: Um, yeah, a bit about that. But I kind of ordered last week, so it's totally OK.
14: Where you guys are working, can people buy online from you, yes. I wonder?
10: Yeah, they oh, buy yeah. online but they click and collect so they can come in and get it in two days. Yeah. But on um, Post does do days. the delivery, so yeah, there will be probably a cut off point in that.
14: Yeah. Uh, I'm not like that now. Me my, my girlfriend does a lot of online shopping now, but I'm more of I'd like to go to the shop and try it on. You know that? On Post are saying they're gonna be about three and a half million parcels delivered in, in December. Right. Judging by the amount of parcels that have been landed at my door the last few days I'd agree with them. That's so the gr- truth. So the girlfriend's doing all the shopping for Christmas, is she?
16: She is, yeah, she is, yeah.
14: And she's well organised here. Are you worried that every is going to not arrive for the for the big day? The only thing I'm worried that the clothes don't fit because she didn't try them on. That's the only thing I'm worried
3: about. <laughs> <laughs> what do you say to that? I hope that man is happy on Christmas morning. Uh, let's talk now to Des Travers, the boss of DPD Ireland. And Des, um, this is, I mean, just a sign of changed times. Yesterday, dpd delivered twice as many parcels as you did on the same day last year is that right
16: yes that's correct Uh, we we delivered well we've seen it right through december uh, but we will have delivered in 2020 35 million parcels which is up from 22 million parcels in 2019
3: and we've all seen the vans uh, delivery vans flying around the country um how much has your business grown and talk to me about what you're delivering and where you're delivering it to
16: well, we're delivering to probably every home in Ireland and uh, we've now got 1,700 plus drivers and i uh, very pleased to tell you that we're clear and that we're up to date uh, with all our deliveries and uh, we'll be delivering right up to the 22nd of December uh, but we are full and uh, we won't be taking on any new customers or, but we work very closely with our customers uh, to make sure that we got the forecast right and that we got through so we'll be delivering nearly everything that you want for your house, the electronic goods, the home press. Presents the uh, anything from pet food right through to uh, to the chemi- uh, chemicals, all sorts of things through it.
3: It's remarkable what you can get online now. You recruited 800, more than eight hundred staff this year, is that right?
16: Yeah, we recruited eight hundred staff to get through. So we saw in the first pandemic. Um, exactly what happened with the volume. So we see ourselves this year as having two peaks. We had one in the summer and the pandemic and then we monitored the volumes as it went through and then we know, as every carrier knows, uh, what's coming at the end because the cyber weekend is always the busiest mm-hmm. period for the uh, for the parcel industry. So we knew what was coming, so we hired. Uh, we also expanded all our depots, our floor space, our capacity in the hub and we basically prepared ourselves uh, to enable us to deliver this volume of parcels this this Christmas.
3: Well I think that anyone who's been getting deliveries whether it's on post whether it's yourselves or, or, or other carriers um, the staff who've been doing all of that have really kept all of us going throughout the past year. Let's talk about next year though Des Travers and the impact of Brexit uh, on DPD Ireland. Um, do you foresee problems?
16: Um, I, I don't foresee problems I just wish that we knew what it was um, even as your last uh, conversation with Maria McGuinness was that we still wouldn't know until Sunday exactly what's required. The trade agreement really doesn't make a whole lot of difference for the south of Ireland because you still need to do customs entries no matter whether the duty is applicable or not and we've been preparing two years for Brexit and uh, we will be ready for Brexit but um, we'd re- we would like to know what the final details mm-hmm. are so that we can get the, the, the arrangements in place.
3: And there's, I mean, even with the deal though, th- what hasn't dawned on a lot of people you know you order something from the UK if it's over a certain value it'll be like ordering for something from China you could find the delivery person at your door and you've charges to pay. <laughs>
16: Yes, there's, there's, we have plans to, to be able to do that a lot earlier so that it won't happen when it's at the final mile at the delivery point. But yes, you're going to have to take into consideration duties and taxes on parcels coming in from a UK website now. We think that a lot of them will put it up front at the checkout in the basket and, then, and others as well. But there will be some instances where we'll have to contact consignees and ask them for the duties and taxes before we do the customs entry.
3: Uh, Yes, and that's even with a deal, deal or no deal, we'll have a lot of those changes. Des Travers of DPD Ireland, uh, thank you very much indeed and a happy Christmas to you and all of your staff.
12: Will it bring down insurance premiums and when? That's the key question from businesses and lobby groups for insurance reform following publication of a government plan to tackle the high cost of insurance. Among the 66 pledges in the plan, replacing the book of quantum, enhancing the role of the personal injuries assessment board, examining the duty of care and monitoring whether personal injury award levels need to be capped. The plan also promises to put perjury on a statutory footing. Sinn Féin's finance spokesman, Pierre Stoherty, is on the Good morning.
17: Good morning to you.
12: Now, I know you say that these commitments are a rehash of promises made over the past four years, but is the question this? Can these reforms achieve a fairer insurance market and drive prices down for the consumer?
17: Well, well, there's no doubt with government action, uh, the, the price gouging that we're seeing in terms of the insurance industry can be brought to a halt. There, there is absolutely no doubt about that. That is why we in Sinn Féin have been putting forward many proposals and indeed, indeed introducing legislation to bring that about. Now, what we have is, if you look at this report, we've got a lot of commitments in relation to further reports, indeed 14 other reports, other vague commitments in terms of review, assess, and what we need is urgency and what we need is action. And you're right, Mary, a lot of the what is it contained within these re- recommendations are a rehash of uh, commitments that have gone back to 2006.
12: you said that, that, that in your statement you said you said it was a rehash I wasn't I was I was quoting you
17: Yes, exactly. And I'm making the point, it is a rehash of commitments that, uh, uh, that that have been made since 2016 in relation to, you know, support and PIAB, uh, looking at other things like fraud registers and so on and so forth, that haven't been delivered by this government. And what we have, unfortunately, is we don't see the urgency in relation to this report as to, uh, to tackling this issue. give you one example. In 2017, I introduced legislation on insurance. That was signed into law nearly two years ago by the President. Today, the Minister for Finance and the government actually still plans to delay key sections of that bill until September next year. On the request of the insurance industry, that isn't the type of urgency, that isn't the type of reform that we need, Uh, and and there's many other things that we could do as well. For example, in the next number of days, I'll be introducing legislation to ban dual pricing, an issue that I put onto the political agenda, an issue that I've got the central bank to do a report into. Again, the government give vague commitments in terms of, let's look at see what the central bank report is saying, and then we'll consider after that time. Dual pricing is a terrible exploitation of people. It is about uh, and how dual pricing,
12: Pierce Doherty, just to explain, is where new entrants give, are given one price, and those in renewals for the first, second, or third year uh, are receiving a different price.
17: Exactly, and it's insurance companies using what's called big data, basically mm-hmm. to figure out how much c- can they push up the price. Of your insurance policy before you will decide to leave the company. And
12: some in this business suggest that bringing in a ban on dual pricing could lead to what they describe as the law of unintended consequences, and you could drive players to, to from the market, uh, you know, eliminating competition. It,
17: Competition is something that we need within the insurance industry. Indeed, that that goes to the very core of it. And remember, this industry is under investigation by the European Competition Authority for working like in a cartel type activity. The problem is, is that dual pricing is practiced by most of the insurance companies here in the state. And you know, and in then in a country of the free market like America, dual pricing is banned in twenty different states. In Britain, it is considered to be banned. Yet here in, in this state, in a very exploitative practice, um, the, the government still don't commit to it. And that's why we aren't waiting for till next September to see what the government thinks about this year. We, are, we have started, we've produced the legislation, uh, and we'll be publishing that within the next number of days, and we'll be hopefully introducing that in the DOL uh, early in January of next year. And that's the type of urgency that we need in relation to insurance prices. I think it's also disappointing that the government have again restated uh, the, the, the bogus claim that uh, motor insurance has reduced by a third... Since 2016, every person and their dog knows that that is not the case. And if that's the premises that they're launching this report, I think it's extremely disappointing.
12: Leo Varadkar, he will be with us after eight o'clock, says that he acknowledges the progress has been slow. He is saying, though, that premiums should come down not in the next few months, but within a year.
17: Well, there's, there's two things in this. First of all, they actually argue in the introduction of the report that premiums have reduced by a third since 2016, which isn't the case. Um, the, the, the CSO uh, way of... Uh, collecting that data uh, isn't accurate and that's very clear from the central bank's reports.
12: The CSO data isn't accurate you're saying?
17: Yeah, the way that the CSO collect the data is they use one type of policy um, and they they measure it each year um, by insurance companies. It's clearly not accurate. What the central bank have done is they look at every single policy that is sold and that data is very clear, is very accurate and we can see that despite the fact that claims have been reducing over the last decade the premiums have continued to increase with the exception of last year and, and this really goes to what, what what is at the heart of this year is that these companies have been making super profits they have been gouging their, okay. their, their customers and they haven't been reducing their premiums. One example is, is where is the government's stance in relation to the fact that there has been so little traffic on our roads as a result of the pandemic yet the response from the insurance industry has been as little as 15 euro vouchers into super value. They, what we are going to see okay. next year is uh, hyper profits from the industry. And a government that's sitting
12: back. A, a, qu- a quick question for you before you go on, Brian Stanley and his Twitter feed. Uh, Leo Varadkar saying yesterday that, in addition to Brian Stanley seeking time to make a statement in the Dole, is it time now uh, for your leader, for Mary Lou Macdonald, uh, to make a statement before the Dáil?
17: Look, you know, we expect, obviously, the, the, the leader of Fine Gael to, to, ha- to have uh, political views in relation to all of this here, and uh, to make comments as, as he's made. But look, it is very clear, Brian Stanley has requested from the Cancoria to make a personal statement of the doll. The Cancoria has uh, acquiesced to that request. He will make that statement uh, on Tuesday of next week and he will clarify the position that he outlined in, in, in a number of tweets over the years.
12: Will he apologise to Leo Varadkar?
17: Well, he has already made an apology in relation to any hurt and offence that has been caused in relation to to the tweets. And I know Brian Stanley for many, many years. And let's be clear about this, and people who know him uh, also as somebody who, you know, didn't hide uh, behind these issues, who put his head above the parapet, he is not... What people have been claiming in relation to suggesting that his comments have been racist or homophobic. That is not who Brian Stanley is, and he deserves the right to make a personal statement in the DAW, and that is something he will do on Tuesday next.
12: Sinn Fein's thank you very much.
0: We are going to talk finally this morning to an incredibly talented young artist, 14-year-old Eva McParland from Malahide in County Dublin, who has won the 2020 Zurich Young Portrait Prize. She drew a portrait of her sister Ellen, and it is stunning. It's online, and it's on the front of some of your papers this morning too, and Eva joins us now. Eva, congratulations to you. It's an um, incredible drawing. Will you describe it for our listeners?
15: Uh, Thank you. Yes, so... I did a drawing of my younger sister, who's 10 years old. It's a colouring pencil drawing and it's on toned paper. Um, it's a, the sitter is my sister and she's wearing a mask and um, her position in the portrait is putting on the mask.
0: And you called the, the painting, Is This Normal?, what inspired yeah.
15: it? Well, I wanted to express the new emotions that were coming up during the pandemic such as fear, anxiety and, most importantly, courage. This is why I included the mask and I called it Is This Normal? Because the mask is one of the many new normals that we were all adjusting to and I wanted people to reflect on these new changes and ask themselves if it is really normal yet.
0: And what's your answer to that question, Is This Normal?
15: Um, I think that we're always changing and I suppose at this point it really is normal you know I wear a mask to school every day now and I don't think twice about it and I don't think you know many of my friends in school they wouldn't think about it either.
0: And your mum's a nurse isn't she so was she coming home every day and going out to work in in PPE and wearing a mask and that must have been that must have been hard.
15: At the beginning, she would have been, yeah. Um, She had a surgery recently and she couldn't actually go to work for uh, quite a big portion of the pandemic. Um, But she was doing some work from home and yeah, but it was hard at the start. Yeah. And
0: Eva, how were you during those worst months? Because the schools closed in the middle of March. And um, so there was no school. There was no GAA, which I know you, you love as well. There was no yeah. swimming, which you do as well. You, you couldn't see your friends. How hard was that for you?
15: I think it was it was really hard for children. I think we do. We adapt fairly quickly. But, you know, all of our routines were just disrupted completely. And our relationships with family and friends were strained. Um, schools were closed. That was probably the biggest thing, you know, because you always take it for granted that you'll have school every day. But suddenly it was gone. Um, and the sports as well, that was really hard to not have G A because that's kind of your outlet, you know. Um, and yeah, it's great to be back now. So hopefully they won't close again.
0: And did you draw to help your mental health during lockdown?
15: Yeah, I think art, it's, a, it's a really great way to deal with different emotions that were coming up and it's a really mindful thing to do and so it definitely helped me get through the hardest parts of the lockdown.
0: Well, Eva, you, you're so talented and um, congratulations to you once again. I'd really urge our listeners to to check out the drawing of your younger sister, Ellen. She must be chuffed as well. Congratulations. And, and just to remind people as well that all those amazing drawings that the children of the country sent in to News Today on RTE for the Christmas uh, competition, the National Library is going to be taking a selection of those and keeping them as memories of living during the pandemic. So future historians will learn from all of our children of what it was like to be a child in 2020. Eva McParland joining us live from Malahide. You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.